Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. I'm Just Dickey. I'm Phoenix Elliott. And today we have Phoenix Elliott with us, as you just heard. I don't know, this stuff is my special interest. When I learned some more about y'all's podcast, which Jess is doing, also Jess is one of my partners, I was like, oh man, this thing is too high value. You can't not do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm here. Yeah. Why this is happening is like, I just... This is your passion. Just, just got got to do replacing guilt. Yeah, I like. Guys, I also feel a little bit like that about like uh, the courage to be disliked and maybe some other things. But you feel that it would make your community <laughs> better if everyone in your community was familiar with this stuff, right? Like this is the kind of thing that I think like actually, literally everyone should read. <laughs> and no one, no one can see the arm pumping unless you could hear it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was, that was yeah. some serious physical, physical emotion behind that too. Yeah. All righty. Well then, let's get into it. Uh, actually, this is a really good week for me and Stephen because we didn't have to do like reading and preparing or anything because we, w- <laughs> we were promised that we would be taught things today. So no pressure or anything, guys. <laughs> Not only are we going to teach you things, we're going to replace an emotion of yours. <gasps> Wait <laughs> with, a minute. With a better emotion. It sounds like a hack. I, I, it, it is kind of a hack. I mean, it's a hack that takes like a lot of work over a long time. <laughs> sounds more like learning something yeah am i going to want to have this emotion replaced because i'm kind of attached to most of mine uh there's a section about that okay (laughs) yes but yes the emotion is guilt and tends not to be a pleasant emotion uh this is the web series called replacing guilt um it's a series of blog posts by nate soares uh, who's the executive director of MIRI, which is the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. How long ago was this written? Um, that's a good question. Is, is there a date on it? Uh, the first post was in 2015. Okay, so it's a few years old, but relatively new. Um, the whole series can be found at Nate's website, which is mindingourway.com forward slash guilt. That's why that name was familiar. Yeah, he's got some other stuff on there too, but this the series is self-contained. The objective is to help people who are driven primarily with guilt-based motivation. It contains some helpful reframes and techniques for, quote, building and maintaining a powerful intrinsic drive without the need to spare yourself with guilt. Um, as someone who personally has been driven hugely by guilt in the past, and uh, this is also something I currently struggle with a lot, uh, I think a lot of people in the rationalist and EA communities could get a lot of value out of this series of posts. It's not just uh, addressing guilt, but I found that reading it also strengthened like my resolve, uh, helped make me more effective, and it did a lot of work towards alleviating some of my depression and anxiety around specifically productivity. So that's my recommendation for why you should read it. Um, it also makes some really cool moral arguments that kind of hide in the beginning of it. I kind of skimmed past that part in the beginning, but when I reread it, I was like really impressed by some of the uh, parts about... Uh, just just uh, philosophy and moral questions. Hmm. Yes? Yeah, so I I guess I was going to say it sounds like, um, well, you're about to get into the like large chunks of the the series of posts. Yeah. And what I'm excited about and kind of wanted just to prime the audience for was that since I didn't want to, well, not that I didn't want to. I wanted to read it. I just didn't want it's, to find time to read it. It is long. So, no, no, it's it's a little long, but it's the the benefit of doing it this way is that you two have read it at least once each and it's going to be more of a learning experience for me and Inyash, and thus we can kind of proxy the audience and ask questions and and do the learning at the same time. So I'm excited about it. Yeah, I like that format. How long is long? Oh, um, 
Well, it's it's about book length if you go by word count. Um, and uh, we won't be able to cover all of the specific ideas. Like, there's about thirty blog posts in it. Um, but there's like can like cover the themes and like some of the ideas. Yeah, there's five chapters each or sections or I'm not sure what to call them, but they're made up of a bunch of blog posts. And there's kind of an overarching idea. It's still worth going and reading the individual ones, but uh, yeah, there's generally like, here's the overarching theme that we're going to do for like these five blog posts. And then these are the little sub themes. I bet by the end you can sell me on this. Mm-hmm. Well, the one thing I will say is that it's, this is like for, for something that is book length, this is very skimmable because he just, he tends to repeat his points because it's actually a blog. Um, so he'll like repeat things from previous posts so that people have context. So if you're good at speed reading, you could read this pretty quickly. I'm not, but I just, <laughs> I, I like kind of like how the, the Dudikowski sequences are kind of skimmable because they link to old stuff and he makes some of the, you, he might have a whole post devoted, devoted to making, say the idea of making beliefs pay rent, but then later he'll just use that one sentence mm. and like get a hyperlink. Cause it's like, all right, if you need context, click this. So you're saying it's that sort of format too. Uh, and he'll re-explain concepts sometimes. Cool. Um, so you can usually just like skip ahead. It also, yeah, it connects to some other posts in Less Wrong and to some other blog posts. So if you did want to get deeper, it has the little clickable links like Less Wrong. I feel like a good way to read this, I mean, unless you just face the whole thing like me, would be uh, maybe reading one post per day. If you're going to try to make it into kind of a meditative habit, I could see that being a cool way to try to absorb the material. And then it's also not so uh, daunting of a big old chunk of words. Yeah, that would be a really good month. That would be a good month. <laughs> All right. Um, so I'm going to attempt to summarize some of the key points and feel free to ask questions as we go. Uh, chapter one is, or section one, whatever the first series of blog posts are, um, are about distinguishing between two different types of guilt. The first section addresses the restless guilt, or I think he said listless guilt as well, that people feel when some part of them thinks they're not doing what's important. Hmm. So if you're someone who struggles with morality and spends a lot of time wondering what the right thing or the best thing is to do with your life, um, I recommend not skipping this part (laughs) or like skimming through it, kind of waiting to get to the better stuff later on. Because this part was, it actually contains some really powerful arguments. um, And this was the part that I kind of overlooked during my first read through. This sounds like really interesting. What are some of these arguments? Mainly it addresses like common arguments about whether anything really matters or uh, do people really do anything because they care about stuff or because of morality or are people just selfish and doing everything for signaling? And what are the answers? Um, (laughs) The answers are, well, uh, it gets a lot deeper in depth, but the TLDR version is that A, it is possible to care about things outside yourself and B, that things larger than yourself are important and you're allowed to care about doing something about them. So I think this was a question you asked earlier of like, but I like guilt. It's useful. (laughs) Yeah, maybe not. I I like it. but Well, yeah, but like I need it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And the idea across all of these is to replace guilt with intrinsic motivation um, and that like having things that you care about that drive you towards those um, instead of like driving yourself with like self-punishment. Okay. Yeah. So I think like this was, um, first of all, it's called replacing guilt, not eliminating guilt. Okay? <laughs> Something's going in its place. But so when you first, 
when we first talked about it, I don't know, a couple months ago, and I got the the ninety second version. I the first thing that came to my mind was like physical pain, and it's like you you touch a stovetop or something hot or get poked, mm. and you're like, ow, that hurts. And it would like it would be you that serves a very important evolutionary purpose. Like you don't want to eliminate that, but it would sure be cool if you could replace it with something else. Like in um. Uh, probably was the God delusion. I think Richard Dawkins talks about, uh, like the evolutionary origins of pain briefly and how it's like physically imaginable that you could have like, just kind of like an, an alarm in your head rather than like this fucking hurts. And it would sure be nice if like you could, I, I mean, for me, it's, it's the kind of thing where I don't know, you hit your toe on something and you're like, oh, okay, ow, yeah, that hurt. Like I'm, I noticed I hit right, that. I won't do it. it. I won't do it again, brain. You bet. <laughs> and then it like it hurts for like ten more minutes. It would sure be nice if you could just tell the part of your brain that's saying, that's screaming at you that this hurts. That hey, I'm aware of it. We're good now. <laughs> do you um, think you'd be as motivated if the pain went away quickly? Uh, like as motivated in the future. I mean, maybe maybe it wouldn't be just like an on-off flag. Maybe it could be like a like a you know an internal siren with different volumes. Uh, I don't know. This is a quick quick side tangent. You can totally train yourself to do that and to like to react to pain this way. It's you then have to like do some of it on manual where you have to like make sure that you don't actually die from <laughs> things that might are hurting you. <laughs> but like this is like how Wim Hof's stuff works, where you just like you learn to interpret stuff as signals instead of like automatically convulsing. How what stuff works? Uh Wim Hof. Uh, he's the guy with the ice powers. The ice man. Oh, okay. I've heard of him, yes. <laughs> it, I, it applies equally well to pain. Okay, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, yeah, that, I, I know there's levels of doing this that go way above what I can do, but I mean, I'm, I'm at, I'm at the point now where if I do wang my head, my foot on something, I tend to like, I, I notice it before, I don't even react before I feel my face like grimacing in it. I just, mm -hmm. I can, I can catch it at that point most times. But then there are people, you know, that I've seen on whatever videos of, I guess, back when cable was a thing, you know, like the martial arts experts who could stand there and like just take a full kick to the nuts <laughs> yeah. or like a, a slap to the face and not flinch. Uh, that, that sounds like, uh, yeah, that sounds like a human attainable skill then. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. So if you can do that with, with pain, it sounds like we could do this with guilt maybe too. <laughs> yeah. There's a few, uh, posts that i think i'll comment on after we get through the the initial summaries that um update from the sucker punch has something to do with that and uh don't steer with guilt uh, we'll talk about those later yeah those are two good ones to pull out neat I'm you mentioned briefly also the um the id that uh does anything matter i think you said or something like that um did i hear that wrong that was what it is well that's what like the first chapter is addressing is that something that can be addressed in like a single chapter? Because I think human, I personally have been struggling with existential angst for a long time. And yeah, no, I'd, I'd suggest reading it. Um, Nate solved it, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. You, you waited this long to tell me? It's over. Ah. I fixed it. Um, next chapter is, or arc, uh, Sora is convincing the readers that they should drop their obligations and get rid of the word should entirely from their vocabulary. He asks, uh, if there's nothing that you felt like you should be doing, then what would you really be wanting to do with your life? Um, the point being that should is this word that people use to kind of beat themselves up or a false like motivator. I need to do this thing because I should do it. Because Well, he's saying that you should. Is it like your mom's voice from when you were a child or... Is it your boss, but like you don't actually care about, you know, like uh, trying to figure out what your 
in the first chapter what do you actually care about and then calibrate towards is this thing that i'm that i feel like i should do actually pushing me towards that i really like that and i'm i can't reflect an articulate thought on that in real time but that that sounds actually really powerfully resonating i think it's it's common in the rationalist community too to like look at something like tra traditions of um, I don't know, surrounding funerals or solstices or uh, weddings and say, okay, well, that's that's what people are supposed to do or what, you know, the, the script says and then not reading from the script. This sounds like a, a more generalized version of that. I'm going to, I cannot, I, this, all, I guess, meta note, this is part of the reason I think I was disliked so much by my teachers through mm. like primary school up until about high school. Because I would do the same thing I'd ask and get all these clarifying questions and suck up a yeah. lot of class time. Um, it wasn't until well, high school where I got teachers that appreciated that. It's like I, I've clearly shown that I can do basic algebra. Like, why, why do I have to do this whole worksheet? Yeah, I, it was more just like, oh, that's really interesting. Can we talk about that for 10 minutes? And like, not really letting them get away from it. But the same. good ones would say, you know what? We got to get through the lesson plan, but soon by after class or after school, yeah. let's talk about it as much as you want. That's Those are the teachers I got in high school. Cool. Yeah. Um, I will cease interrupting, but... Or, no, I won't. Let's be honest. <laughs> but, but I'm enjoying this. That's really cool. I You'll will be feeling guilty about interrupting. I already have. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am occasionally an etymology nerd, and I really enjoyed the etymology of the word "should," in that it is actually just the past tense of "shall," which hmm. it kind of helps me think about this because it feels like when you, when I say like I should do this thing, it's like saying like. I am declaring that at some point in in the past, I already decided that I like should do this thing. I have pre-committed to and doing like, this thing. But in, a lot of the times, like you, you didn't do that before. You're doing it right now. Like you're you're pretending that you already pre-committed and like acting like you already have the weight of that pre-commitment on you. And you. That is a, <laughs> that's an interesting thing to learn. <laughs> yeah, I personally have had a tap even before i read this of if i say i i have to do this or i need to do that trying to just always uh reframe that as i want to do this yeah. and uh part of the reason is if you say i have to or i should or i need to it kind of feels negative like some outside pressure is making you do it and that sucks whereas if you make it seem like your own choice then it feels better and then also you can gut check it because if if it doesn't, if you say, I want to um, pay this bill today, <laughs> I don't know that maybe that's a bad example. Well, when I was like but... renovating this place, I never thought of things that like I should be doing right now. It was always like, this needs to get done and I want to get the place done so I can move in. So gonna go to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Or even for me, like, so I have a lot of anxiety about explaining things to audiences <laughs> and I was like going back and forth a lot about whether to even be here on this podcast today and when i like looked at like okay do i want to do this like if i ask myself if i say like i want to do this thing the next thing the next thought is like okay well, why do i want to do this thing and there are actually reasons that i want to do it there's reasons that i don't want to do it but it turns out like the reasons that i wanted to do it outweighed those of like i want to be the kind of person that can do this thing um and actually examining like why you're deciding to do a thing can go a long way in feeling intrinsic motivation about it instead of guilt. All right. Yeah. Uh, the third arc, Soares introduces techniques for building intrinsic drive without the need for guilt as a motivator. 
Uh, he points out in these chapters, working yourself ragged is not a virtue. That's actually the name of one of the posts. Um, and that the work too hard and then rest a long time narrative is a dangerous narrative. Oh, and what's that? Working too hard, you burn yourself out. And yeah. then when you're resting a long time, then you're not being productive. And then you're feeling shitty about it. Mm. Um, I think you also lose a lot of momentum. Yeah. There's also... Um, I think this is also where he talks about the resting in motion thing that a lot of people think of rest as like just sitting, doing nothing like recuperating. But he makes the argument that like really restorative rest is more like actually you're just doing whatever you want and not being constrained by other people or systems or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that like, if you really feel like just getting up and going on a hike, that can be really restful, even though you're like doing active stuff. Yeah. I absolutely find that true. Uh, there's definitely a different feeling between I still have energy to go for a hike and I'm kind of recuperating from this versus I've burnt myself out at work and now all I have the energy for is to scroll Facebook hmm. and drink a beer and be kind of low-grade, like, dissociating or kind of miserable. <laughs> That's not rest. Yeah. That okay. reminds me on, there's a subreddit that I like that isn't as like pejorative or mocking as it sounds called white people twitter um, <laughs> for, for example julia galef was on i saw not on like the front page of it but it was the I, this was i probably saw this on facebook like three years ago before i stopped being on there but it was uh like a picture of her tweet that was like she went and saw a dog or like she went to go like try and pet a dog that like then didn't want to pet her or didn't want to be pet and then as she was leaving the person said you always do this you, you never make friends or something to their dog <laughs> um and so there was one that I saw on the yesterday that was, uh, quote, tired of explaining that I don't have time doesn't mean literally every second of my schedule is accounted for, but rather I'm giving as much of myself as, I, as I'm currently able to give. And I like that a mm. lot. I spend yeah. a lot of my time and I'm not, that sounds like I'm more like stretched out than I am, but like most of my time at home is just like relaxing and doing nothing productive, which I like to be productive during a several hour chunk of the day. And then I like to go home and like watch reruns or, you know. Yeah, like wind down. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I do a lot of, of that. So um, anyway, I that was somehow relevant. I've forgotten how other than, I guess, nicely reframing things and. Uh, Tied into their whole resting and relaxing. Yes. Thank you. I knew it was. I knew it wasn't out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Somewhere in here. I forget which section. There's um, uh, a concept of sort of managing different streams of work or things you have to do and like there's job work man i should stop cracking my knuckles um like there's job work uh like interpersonal relationship work and like one of the things that you have to do is like take time to recover and like rest and like if you don't do any of that you'll have bad results yeah <laughs> you have you have to like balance all of these things and like taking time to do something not productive is actually important. I think that's why I've only had I've only worked at two different tech companies, and the one I have the one I'm at now doesn't actually have a ping pong table available to us. But their main office does, and I don't play ping pong. But the point is, like, I think at a good workplace, if they have things to do like that aren't work related, no one should get upset at you for you know if you use it for 15 minutes a day. Like um, a couple weeks ago, me and my three coworkers went out into the alley between the buildings by our office and like threw a football around. <laughs> and like, that was actually really got like just moving and like the, the act of like having to coordinate and, you know, <laughs> throw stuff like that was actually good to get the juices flowing again. So, um, oh, that's like team nice. bonding. 
That too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Like actual team bonding as opposed to the forced company yeah. event. <laughs> right. But I guess like 15 minutes of like completely not doing anything for the boss time actually leads to more productive last four hours of the day, you know? Yeah. Yeah, they've actually shown that in workplaces where they do expect you to be at your desk every minute that you're on the clock and like my last job where you can't go on Facebook for two seconds, you're only allowed to be doing work stuff on your computer, you can't use your phone, you can't take breaks unless it's like your half hour mandated lunch break. Uh, human brains don't work like that. Yeah. No matter how hard we try to domesticate them with, you know, 15 years of schooling, that's just not how it shakes out. Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. Like, people will get much more work done if they, I guess the Pomodoro method is kind of work for 25 minutes, take a five-minute break. There's a reason that they have you do that. You can't just keep working in these uninterrupted blocks. Not uh, four-hour uninterrupted blocks. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, back to the third arc. Instead of giving into society's urge to work unrealistically hard or long, or giving up and believing that it's not even worth trying, Soros instead suggests that we can change our behavior by approaching obstacles from a mindset of experimentation and creativity, instead of attempting to berate and guilt ourselves into submission. And I, I really like that approach. I found that this is especially good when you're doing something boring or repetitive, and you can't get up the motivation for that reason, you can kind of like make it a game and be like, well, how could I actually make this harder? <laughs> or like, how, how like how fast can I finish doing this thing and then like time myself? Or I don't know, uh, what can I do this backwards or something? Mm -hmm. um, and he also argues there's no such thing as a bad person in the third arc and uh, includes some helpful reframes for self-compassion. So there's a lot going on in this middle part. Is that no? Is that no such thing as a bad person in like the Mister Rogers slash, uh, I don't know, or is it just like the unconditional acceptance, like psychologist uh, point of view? I'm not sure. I don't remember what Mister Rogers says. I think it's more of a you are like, I don't know. It, it, there are bad actions and not bad people. Do you remember Phoenix? Um, the way I remember it is basically like the the concept of a bad person is not helpful and is just a way to apply guilt, and that like you can just let go of the concept of people being bad. Like basically everyone is trying to do whatever they're trying to do. And like, just like how like the concept of evil is kind of silly and unrealistic. Right. No, I love it. That's perfect. And that ties into last week's uh, less wrong post about all your enemies innately evil. And it's like, no, yeah. they're just like, you know, yeah, people, I, I love it. I, I, I was going to basically just repeat you said, but I, that's a phrase that I, I like a lot that um, people, are just trying their best, you know, even if they're being a dick, even if they're, so that's the thing is they're being a jerk. They're, they're doing mean things. They're not, they're not jerks. They're not mean people. They're just, they're people doing those things, you yeah. know? And this focus is more on your self-concept. The idea of, um, Soros is kind of bringing up in the first three, three sections objections people might have, like, well, how do I know what matters? And then in this one, it's kind of, what if I am just a bad person? So this seems not so much to be looking at the outside world and trying to judge other people, but the tendency people have to be like, I didn't do this essay on time. I'm a bad person. You can just be like, I didn't do this essay on time, and that sucks, but I'll try harder next time. <laughs> There's no reason to yell at yourself, especially after the fact. It sounds a lot harder to do if you are always reminded that you have hurt a person. 
if you've hurt someone yeah i don't know if that applies because this is more of like kind of failing to live up to your own expectations okay. I, I could see maybe if you failed to live up to say your mom's expectations and it feels like you're hurting her so this is for like a very specific type of guilt i'm in i feel like now's a good time to talk about update from the sucker punch though i'll go for it um so this post is this, this is one of like 10 posts in this section um which is in particular about like if you've done something that's harmed someone else and like the there's one path that people often take where it's like you you realize that you've hurt someone else and then you spend the next like week just sort of like punching yourself in the brain about it um, <laughs> and just like applying guilt to yourself over and over. And Nate makes the argument that uh, instead of guilt, you can do a thing that like one might describe using similar words, but um, as long as like... If you say say you just have like sort of a, a pretend like agent that just, like doesn't have emotions and just tries to do things well, like it's easy to imagine this thing would like just learn what it did wrong, and then like try to do the right thing in the future, and then be done with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes the suggestion that you can just you can do that. Um, you you are you can allow yourself to not like punish yourself with guilt and just try to figure out what went wrong um what the mistake was and how to change one's future behavior to not make that mistake again uh and then once you've done that that's that's actually like the only like duty you really have in this kind of situation is to try to be better and self-flagellating is really just a social signaling kind of thing to show people that you cared um but like other people probably don't want you to be self-flagellating mm-hmm. <laughs> if they like care about your well-being, uh, and so like if you and other people are on the same page about this, you can just both agree to not self-flagellate about these kinds of things and just try to update instead. Okay. Yeah. I think it's very hard to wrangle emotions like that, but it I guess is. That's what yeah. This post <laughs> is all about all all of this is very difficult, <laughs> but it works if you like practice it. Okay. Yeah, the update from the Sucker Punch, uh, I remember distinctly after reading this, like, the next day, I think I ended up using it, and I caught myself Mm. in the pattern of, I fucked this thing up, uh, wait a minute, okay, uh, what did I do wrong, there was this thing, uh, what did I learn from this, that I, in the future, should do it this way, okay, now I get to stop feeling bad, and it's like, I've committed to not doing this in the future, and it actually worked uh it didn't completely get rid of the guilt or the bad feelings about having messed up but i kept remembering like every time i would catch myself starting to feel bad i would be like oh yeah no i we already went through this i know what i learned from that and then like it would alleviate it pretty considerably yeah it basically like you're allowed to not get stuck in a negative self-talk loop about it <laughs> yes just like what every therapist would tell you <laughs> Um, the fourth arc has more techniques for building intrinsic drive. Sora suggests drawing on the ways the world around you is broken and figuring out if there's anything that you can do to make it less so. Ooh, that's so a good one. What? That's a good one. Yeah. Well, um, what I liked about this is that he specifies your intrinsic drive doesn't have to necessarily be save the world uh, or like build a galaxy spanning human civilization, but it could be I want to help this one specific person. And... Uh, or, like, I want to help 
dogs. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you just just look for a way that the world's broken. Uh, man, there's lots of stray dogs. Uh, what could I do to fix it? And then, then you have a goal. Um, go ahead. And like the really important qualifier here is that it has to be something that you personally actually care about, not something that you've been convinced by other people is like a good thing to care about. Yeah, or not doing it for signaling purposes or whatever. Unless like. I don't know. I could, <laughs> I guess I could see a scenario where I'm trying to be a politician, so I'm going to do stuff for signaling reasons because it leads to this main goal that I have of power. Like, uh, all right, whatever. <laughs> so Generally, you probably don't want to do stuff for signaling purposes, though. Speaking of signaling purposes, I'm I'm still kind of hung on the last. Uh, it was from the last chapter, but the like that self-flagellation is largely like social signaling. But I've I've had periods in my life where I like would wake up. And have like a few seconds before I like immediately felt like shit before like like that took me to remember the thing I was feeling bad about the day before, mm-hmm. and like nobody knew, like that was just me like having this problem right. So that that's not I wasn't signaling like to anybody but myself. Yeah. Um. In my case, when I do it, it seems like I'm self signaling. I think that this and this might just be like pop psychology, but like my impression is that this is a habit that you learn from your parents or from other authority figures. That when you mess up, you have to apologize and maybe grovel. Um, like, basically be like, I've messed up, I messed up, I'm so sorry, I'm really proving that I know, you know, I understand that I made this mistake. And you you do it to yourself. So you're, what, like, internally signaling to yourself that you're a good, a good person. <laughs> I kind of wish we had Matt Freeman here. We can interrogate him on whether that is the various aspects of your sub-agent signaling to each other. Oh, well... Mm. I think uh, I can speak to the fact that it probably is, right? Well, I don't know. I don't know what he would say, but that's that's how I picture it. I mean, I, I, the way that I kind of bifurcate in my head, like if I'm having something like this, this wasn't a technique I had back when I was having this guilt issue that I'm thinking of. Um, but I mean, you can have the part of you that's like really beating yourself up and you can just kind of talk to it as a separate person and be like, look, it's okay. We can get through this. And I like, I know why you feel this way, but we can do this instead. And sort of like treating your sub-agents as if they're different people in your mind. I think that's that's maybe not what Matt would say, but that's how I would do it. Yeah. But I'm interested, I'm interested to hear what he would say as well. Um, so I have a couple of models about this. Uh, one is that uh, growing up with, like growing up people tend to know other people who apply guilt at them. Like mm-hmm. often it's one's parents or mm-hmm. teachers or whoever. Um, and... The way we internalize this is that we sort of build up a model of those people, maybe sort of glom them all into one sort of pseudo person in our mind. And then we just sort of run that in the background as just like part of us. And so I, th- I think the sort of parts thing of like one part is sort of guilting the rest is pretty accurate. Uh, and that this is, the, the I think the reason that it works this way is so that like, if you do this preemptively to yourself, you actually in assuming that it's accurately modeling the way the world is going to interact with and like possibly punish you preempting that sort of reduces the external harm um where like if you can self-flagellate before getting actually flagellated by someone else (laughs) uh this is protective in a way i think that makes sense though if you remember it by all means just just shoot it out but i was thinking i think you you helped me resolve the distinction like it's not social signaling necessarily, because I, I, I just imagined as 
you know, the hypothetical mm-hmm. audience that I might draw attention with that. Like, I'm not signaling to anybody. Fuck that. This must, this, <laughs> this, this must all be wrong. But self-signaling makes sense. This also reminds me a lot of like the best way to lie to other people is to convincingly lie to yourself first. <laughs> Speaketh George Costanza. <laughs> it's not a lie if you believe it. <laughs> <laughs> and that like maybe the best way to like really signal to other people that like you're sufficiently punishing yourself is to actually punish yourself. <laughs> so speaketh Robin Hanson. I think that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a good point. I like it. All right. Thanks for letting me dig into that a little bit. Hmm. No, that was good. So one of the posts that we, uh, from section three that I wanted to talk about earlier, uh, don't steer with guilt is, um, so if you imagine like, if you have like a graph of like you're in this current state and you have like actions that you could do and there's like this whole big branching graph of like paths you could take Nate argues that the correct way to use guilt is to set up guilt on like some of these states where like you really want to avoid these where like you don't like you like you really want to avoid accidentally killing someone with your car and so you like place on like the path where like you get really drunk and then drive your car like a big pile of guilt like waiting there like you aren't there yet but it's like there you can see it waiting for you a problem that a lot of people have is they just put it in way too many places and that if you're hitting like the guilt branches very often at all then you're wasting a lot of energy on hitting these like self-punishment outcomes uh to try to like to try to steer where you go and uh just this this is really inefficient um and that he makes the argument that in instead of like steering through the these paths with guilt you steer with intrinsic motivation instead um and you save guilt for like the really negative outcomes that you like really strongly want to avoid and that are like worth punishing yourself for like if you hit those and like leaving the threat of self-punishment there as a way to like avoid them but not just using that all the time makes it much more potent when it is used too yeah Yeah, like i feel like the example of driving drunk and hitting a child probably is one of those times where guilt would be appropriate Mm -hmm. and you don't want to use the same amount of guilt to steer yourself away from the cookie jar right really hitting any person (laughs) not just (laughs) yeah yeah what if it's hitler <laughs> <laughs> what if what if it's baby hitler okay in that case we, <laughs> right, yeah. we, we solved yeah. philosophy 101 um I, I think there's an, something to be said too about like if you just feel guilty all the time it's not it's not even doing anything anymore <laughs> it's not effective like, it's, it's not even steering at that point <laughs> yeah then it's just driving with the parking brake on yeah Yep. the analogy to pain there still fits like if you're if your foot hurt all the time whether or not you just banged it on furniture then it's not giving you a useful signal right mm-hmm. yeah. yeah all right yeah that's a good analogy actually I, i'm really glad that you thought of that i'll see how many more times i can shoehorn it in <laughs> <laughs> so the thing you just said about driving with the parking brake on that that's one thing that people find if they're driven by guilt is that it can be paralyzing you where like no options look good mm-hmm. and you just like you just can't do anything because everything looks bad right. and i think this happens for a lot of people yeah <laughs> yeah. Think, yeah god damn i my brother just borrowed the neon genesis evangelion series for me and i think that's basically one of the primary emotional themes of that series mm. is that here are people that feel terrible about everything they do and there's no good options have guilt friend 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the end uh, of the fourth arc talks about that when you're given the choice between bad and worse, uh, you can feel good about choosing bad. Uh, that sometimes there are a lot of bad choices, but you're still allowed to make value judgments. Um, he also talks about coming to terms with the fact that you might fail and discusses how in this process you can turn guilt into resolve and you can feel fulfilled with struggling to make the future as bright as you can make it without beating yourself up about it or taking on more than you can realistically handle. So it's kind of the techniques of not needing to do the absolute best thing all the time, just doing a better thing. Yeah, basically beating yourself up about something is inefficient if you want to actually achieve something. Another thing that applying guilt to certain paths, uh, another effect that that has is you can make things like, you can make certain paths like unthinkable because like, well, I can't do this path because then I would be a bad person. And if a path is unthinkable, then you can't actually like work with it and try to find like the optimal outcome. Like if actually all of the options are somewhere between bad and worse, you need to be able to think about them. Um, and if you just write all of them off immediately as like, this makes me a bad person, so I can't do it. Then like, you, you can't do like right. literally anything. Yeah. You can't, you can't, you can't do math about like wh which one is actually better. Yeah. I'm, I'm reminded of a conversation that I had with a coworker who makes an effort to like, not just eat a, um, environment or a, a suffering friendly diet, but an environmentally friendly diet. He tries to buy like, um, ethically sourced clothes and all that stuff. Hmm. Um, like it's not a not it's not a rebuttal to like the vegan to point out that like you know they kill mice when they harvest the grain right like that yes that that sucks but that's like a reality of it right it, it, unless you're finding some safe way to grow this all yourself and like carefully hand remove each bug or something before you you know harvest it <laughs> some suffering is going to be involved but that doesn't mean that like you're not doing a good thing it, yeah, mean, it might not thing. It, it might not be the perfect thing because the perfect perfect options aren't on the table so you choose the less bad one Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That reminds me of like the, I feel like this sounds like a Scott Alexander style um, uh, nuance. So correct me if I'm wrong, but was he the one that talked about like maybe eating vegetarian one day a week being like a lot better than eating, you know, than eating meat all the time or something? It, like you, you don't have. He definitely said something like that. Yeah. I think he personally um, has some kind of rule where he doesn't eat meat unless he's going out to eat if i remember correctly and then he almost never goes out to eat <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i'm pretty sure it's not original to him but i think he's mentioned that yeah yeah at least i heard it from i think it was late star codex the idea okay. that like you you can make an improvement and you, you, if you're not ready to make the commitment to doing something all the way you can still do a bit you know it's like giving five percent to charity and it's like look could you afford to give 30 percent Probably if you pinch, depending on who you are, but like, yes, maybe you could, maybe you could theoretically afford to give 30%, but like, that's not a sacrifice you're willing to give, but 5% sounds totally manageable and it's way more than most people. You're still doing a really good thing. So, mm -hmm. all right. I like it. And then in the last arc, Soros introduces some mental stances that make guilt seem like an alien concept. Um, a particularly good article here is uh, one called Confidence All the Way Up that I wanted to particularly pull out. Um, I highly recommend reading this one if you don't have the time to read the whole series. I think we can link to that one and the other two that we mentioned. Confidence All the Way Up teaches the skill of being confident in your ability to make a difference and be effective while not being overly sure of anything. Uh, he also discusses the concept of desperate reckless defiance, hmm. <laughs> each of which is a link, um, which is a kind of reframe of the 
general less wrong methods of rationality kind of ethos of doing the impossible or having the heroic mindset and it's very inspiring well I, i've actually had a quote pulled out from confidence all the way up which was insofar as i'm uncertain of my content i'm confident in my analysis except i'm not fully confident in my analysis but insofar as i'm uncertain of my analysis i'm confident in my reasoning procedures except i don't put faith there either but insofar as I'm uncertain of my reasoning procedures, I'm confident in my friends and fail-safe mechanisms that'll eventually force me to take notice and update. Except that's not quite right either. It's more like every lack of confidence is covered by confidence one meta-level higher in the cognitive chain. The result is something that reads socially as confidence, regardless of how much empirical uncertainty I'm under. Hmm. And that I remember that one also really helping me, where I was kind of trying to figure out what confidence is, or... Um, maybe more specifically assertiveness. That's something I struggle with a lot. And I was coming at it from totally the wrong angle of like, this is a, a way that you pretend. <laughs> like it's a, a way that you do tone of voice and body posture and facial expressions to convey that nothing upsets you. Um, and I like this take much better, which is kind of a much calmer idea of confidence. Yeah, I don't know if calmer is to, the right word, but. Instead of trying to fake it, there's actually a way to get there. Yeah. And that's to actually be confident in, well, I'm pretty good at what I do, and if I screw up, there's my coworker who can help me. And if he screws up, we could go to the boss, and then like if nobody, none of us can figure it out. Like there, there's always ways yeah. to cover your ass. <laughs> there's a thing that comes up a lot when people are talking about confidence of like, like on some level, you know that like no matter how bad you are at this thing you're going to do, like you're probably not going to die because of it, and that like even if you fail at doing the thing, even if like you fail at the mental processes that would like let you maybe try to figure out how to do it like there's still other layers of being able to handle existing that there's always sort of fallbacks that if you can notice all the layers of fallbacks there um you can feel confident that on some level it will work out even if not necessarily completely on like the immediate level all right yep and is that the the entirety of the thing that's what I got. Cool. And so how has, I guess I'm going to start with how has this helped you overall? The parts that helped me were the replacing guilt thing, the recognizing it when, um, let me back up a little bit. Uh, I went through a couple periods of have you know, having like lost my house in a fire, being unemployed. And, uh, one of the things that I was struggling with was a lot of depression and feeling bad about not working full-time during the periods where I was in school or when I was unemployed. And it led to having just whole days where I just felt bad about myself the entire day. And reading this helped me uh, to kind of look at that feeling and be like, well, what is, is there any purpose for me to feel bad right now? Is, is this actually helping me in any way? And mostly, no. Like, I was still motivated to finish my classes and then go apply for a bunch of jobs and then like do all that stuff and in between it's like that's what I'm doing right now <laughs> it's it seems so obvious it is a bit frustrating to talk about because coming from where I was before it was the least obvious thing in the world having been raised in an environment where it's like yeah you need to feel guilty all the time I mean I was raised Catholic <laughs> for what it's worth I think everyone can relate to a time in their life where they felt that way where it's most like, people probably yeah you, at least most I mean I can certainly think of times where I started doing around or sat around doing very little other than just like 
again, feeling guilty or feeling like I fucked up or something. And uh, sure, now I can look back and say, man, you could have just not wasted all the energy. <laughs> uh, but at the time, you don't really see an option. But what you're saying is that if you had been armed with these these techniques beforehand, you might have seen that option almost immediately or at least sooner. Yeah, you can catch yourself. Um, uh, and then there was something that I forgot to actually clarify or follow up on. The first chapter talked about the listless guilt, and that was the idea of being guilty about not doing anything in particular. And then the second type of guilt was the pointed guilt, which was the guilt about not doing one particular thing that you feel like you should be doing. Yeah, I was going to say what, I, what I've gotten out of this especially is there's there's a lot of little mental habits that uh, once, once you start seeing these patterns and like seeing like sort of the good and bad versions of them, even if you're generally pretty good at this, there's still like a lot of little ways that these can sneak in. And this has gotten me a lot better at noticing when I'm doing that and like being able to consciously intervene. And eventually it sort of like percolates down and becomes a little bit more automatic. Another thing uh, that I got out of it is, especially just like being in the rationalist EA community, especially in Berkeley, there's a lot, a lot of people are trying to save the world. And I learned that like literal world saving is not actually that intrinsically motivating for me. <laughs> and I, I kept trying to use it in this way and kept failing and like kept just like not really doing anything with it because of that. And this is really helpful for letting me reorient around the things that actually drive me, which honestly, I'm still working on some, but it's, I don't constantly feel guilty about feeling like there's this thing that should be motivating that just isn't. <laughs> or feeling bad that you're not personally trying to save the world single-handed. Yeah. I was just going to say, I feel like I'd be much more like personally motivated to save the world if I felt like I had any reasonable avenue to doing so yeah like if i was superman and instead of like being out there saving people or whatever producing infinite energy for the planet i was just sitting here recording a podcast and like holding a day job or something then i think superman should feel guilty for having a day (laughs) job right but uh the the fan fiction metropolitan man covers all of that (laughs) but yeah i mean i i I went through something like that too i think shortly after i discovered the rationalist community i'm like oh my god there's you know all this stuff out there but i'm just not smart enough to do it i don't know you know how to even get started what what could i even possibly contribute and i guess years ago i finally was just like you know what nothing i'll try and have fun make some money and maybe throw some money at the people who are doing this you know right i also like to focus on smaller things that i can help with local things you know people near me that i care about that kind of thing yeah like one of the best candidates of like thing i really care about it looks more like helping people be more like emotionally like and like internally healthy which is why things like this are my special interest and not like solving ai yeah (laughs) yeah and you need psychologists and you need people working on the community level if like the entire population of the earth were all trying to save the world focused on like the bigger goals and not focused on like helping your neighbor who just fell down the stairs then your neighbor would be laying there on the floor <laughs> and yeah <laughs> it's important yeah to cover all your bases well if the entire population of the earth was focused on saving the world some of them would have to be allocated to these other things like keeping the community running and helping the old lady down the stairs and then they would be really upset that they're working on that instead of saving the world so it's good to have a diversity of interests yeah oh there was a really good post i think 
uh gosh um i'm trying to remember the name and also who wrote it i think graham and arnold wrote it and it was about uh the village and the mission yeah that yeah. had a really good uh analysis of like the ways in which this kind of balance is important in that if everyone is like laser focused on the mission then like no one has friends yeah, <laughs> yeah and also no one's cooking the meals yeah <laughs> or cleaning the bathroom uh it's important so how long did uh, like absorbing this and implementing it in your life take how much effort what um what's I'd the process like? say it's ongoing yeah well, I'm, well, okay i'm, I'm, just, I'm still doing yeah. that yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> every now and then i go back and look at it and i'm reminded of some things of like oh yeah i haven't done that in a while yeah but because these are kind of like, I, I would I like to describe or to kind of compare stuff like this to CBT, where it's an ongoing therapeutic process where you're constantly catching the bad train of thought and then reframing it. And over time, you get faster at catching it, uh, better at preempting it, better at quickly coming up with a reason and then believing it. Um, Wait, quickly coming up with a reason and then believing like a, it? Like a reframe. I'm trying to think of an example. Um, one that I had a lot was... My friends don't really like me. They all think I'm annoying and they're just like mm. tolerating me to be polite. And then I would be like, no, I'm going to, you know, go to the last wrong meetup and have a good time and then update in favor of the last two times I went to less wrong, I had a good time. The last three times I went to less wrong, I had a good time. <laughs> and then like the, finally it's been like, I've been going to these less wrong meetups for three months. <laughs> and now when my brain tries to tell me nobody actually likes me there and I won't have a good time, it's going to suck. And I'm like, no, all of my data shows the opposite. And, and you feel much more confident in it. And for some data you didn't have, the last one that you missed, many people asked me where you were. Oh. So, no. um, the, I think this is, seems like analogous to like, you know, how long did it take you to absorb and implement the sequences and the, and the methods of rationality and benefit from them? Right, still and happening. It, exactly. Yeah. It's like, well, I, I don't know, seven years ish, <laughs> and on, you know, plus. Mm. So, yeah. Um, and you can still get stuff out of rereading them. I'm like, as we're doing the sequences on this podcast, I'm like, oh yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like going back and rereading this was really helpful for me because I had totally missed that beginning part about like the part where it was saying, here's how uh, you can care about something, find something to care about and then believe that it's worth caring about. It's yeah. actually like a really important step that I'm really surprised that I kind of just like breezed past the first time. I guess I already felt that way or like didn't think I had anything to learn but I was wrong. Hmm. Yeah. And when I first read this, I was like back when like I was constantly feeling kind of aimless because of like being surrounded by people trying to save the world and not quite knowing what thing I actually wanted instead. And sections four and five were like kind of hard to internalize back then, but I've gotten more to a place where like I can actually do anything with this. So if a listener... If you were going to leave a listener one takeaway now that they could implement before they, you know, dive into this and start reading, what what would be a thing they should take just to make immediate cool life improvement? Oh, man. I have to choose. I <laughs> kind of think that, like, the one I said earlier about replacing the word should. Uh, Try to, if you catch yourself saying, I should do this or I ought to be doing this or I need to do this. Try, uh, I want to do this because, and if you have a reason... Uh, good, then it you probably feel much more aligned and much less like someone's trying to bully you into doing something that you would have done anyway. If you don't have a reason, then maybe you don't really need to do it. Cool. I'm thinking of like some mundane ways to like practice that habit that, you know, you don't have to start on hard mode with, you know, resolving conflicts of guilt. Like this, this afternoon, I had the thought I should eat something for lunch because I'm not hungry, but I know it will be later. And so I, I can 
I think I'll, I'll try and set a flag in my head for whenever the word should comes up in my yeah. stream of consciousness yeah. and just say, Stephen, you want to eat lunch now? Because if you don't, you're going to be really pissed and hungry at two, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I can definitely say that that, that particular post uh, should considered harmful is by far the one of these that I've seen passed around the most independently of the whole series. Yeah, it's a good one. What was the co- uh, said should is quote should considered harmful. Gotcha. Yeah, I think we've named four specifically at this point, and we'll link to those ones. And you can read the whole thing if you want, or you can kind of just read the best of. I'm I'm looking through these and trying to find anything that I would recommend more, but I think that one is uh, it's very it's very nicely encapsulated, where a lot of the other things sort of require some of the context around them to use more. But I think that one's like a nice easy tap to implement. Like, notice you're saying shit about something and then think about why and whether you actually want it. Now I'm just trying to think of, you know, if someone's listening to this and they're, this sounds all very appealing and, you know, that sounds great. I'd love to feel that way. But in somewhere in their head, they're like, no, I really should feel like crap about this because I've just fucked up. Like, is there a way that you would respond to that if someone came to you right now and was like, said that? <laughs> um, I would say that, if if they said I really deserve to feel like crap about this, I would just say why. Like, how is it helping you to to continue to mentally beat yourself up about it? How is it helping the situation? Like, right? Like, does does this make you more effective? I think a lot of people have an internalized sense of justice, though, that perhaps would be violated if they didn't continue feeling guilty for whatever they think their appropriate period of time is. I would um tell them to do the exercise of update with the sucker punch notice that this thing hurt and then what did it teach you and then what will you do in the future and i think that you can absolve yourself of guilt if you've in good faith gone through each of those steps and like committed to trying to fix the thing that you did wrong or to do it better next time and i think you and i you know are talking about two different kinds of examples like you're talking about somebody who hurt somebody and feels bad about it or you know their fuck up caused actual harm or something. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm talking about the person who might just feel like, you know, I don't know. I, I'm doing nothing with my life. What's even the point? Yeah. Or, you know, I, um, I can't think of a good example. Like I, I should have tried harder in school or something. Yeah, or like I, I should, I should have gone, or... or I should have gone, you know, to, to get a master's degree or, you know, I should have, I should have gone to, to higher education mm-hmm. and like, you know, I should have spent more time working out over the past year. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the way to, re- I can, that's, that's an easy one for me to solve having just learned what I've learned in the last hour, which is like, all right, cool. <laughs> Instead of saying, I sh- yeah, sure. You should have, you can move past that line of thinking and saying, all right, cool. Start now. Um, you know, like I've got a friend who is, I think he's going to have his last cig or his last, he's stopping smoking. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he's like, yeah, I'm going to quit when I'm 30. And I think that's like the middle of September. Okay. And so like he's, this is like looking at it from another way, but this is a way that I like to think of, of that kind of like retrospective. I should have done this. I can just say, all right, cool. In five years, what will I be thinking that I should have done? And like, there are boring answers or there are boring ways to frame that question. But then um, you can look at like a thing you're doing and it's like, yeah, I start every day with, you know, two donuts or something. And I don't, walk more than i need to to get to work or something it's like all right well what are the odds that in five years you regret doing that if you feel like they're pretty high you can just stop that now right mm-hmm. um i i know that i'm i'm on the tip of like being able to put that in a more interesting way <laughs> but I think, yeah i think um harry puts it best in 
chapter 10 maybe <laughs> or nine of methods of rationality where he realizes that uh that 10 years from now he's going to just go back looking at this moment thinking if only i had done this differently my friends would still be alive and the world wouldn't be burning and oh god and like oh yeah it's 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 this is that moment from for that i'll be regretting in 10 years wish granted oh right after he got sorted and he's like i should have told him about no, the, yeah wasn't that the uh, or, or maybe this came up a few times i remember he was trying to get mcgonagall to like let him buy a first aid kit <laughs> like a really intense one that, that had like blood coagulant and <laughs> right yeah. no that was that was a few chapters before what i'm talking about because in that one he was like preparing for for things going bad whereas this one he was he was realizing that he had a chance to go back in time and stop himself at the path of divergence into evil except mm. instead of going back in time it was this time right now oh like ah. Your wish is granted. You are at that period. I like that. Yeah. And that's, I remember, like, Sam Harris does this section on some of his podcasts that's, like, the least interesting, where it's, like, a grab bag of, like, generic interview questions. And one of them is, you know, what are you doing now that you suspect in 10 or 20 years you'll regret not doing, or, like, you'll regret doing, either, like, not spending enough time on or doing too much time doing in this. Mm-hmm. And Robin Hansen had the best answer, and he's like, if I was aware I was doing something like that, I wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> I right? think Robin I Hampton is one of the few people who have that answer to give, though. It's true, which is weird, because that's also my answer. Like, I mean, yes and no. Like, maybe I would have wished that I read more in 10 years or something, you know. But, mm-hmm. like, I'm currently not, like, kicking myself for not reading enough books. Okay. Um, it's not like I never read, but I, I should probably read more. But, like, I don't... Oh, you just I'm use not... that should word. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't use that word as much. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's funny, two years ago, I was in that exact same position where I was really happy with everything I was doing, you know, and, and now less so. Now I could answer that question with something. Hmm. hmm. That's worrisome because I thought I was on an upward track that was going to stay up. And Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> nothing goes up forever, right? Hmm. Everyone has their dips and valleys and then comes back again. I have uh, just sort of a tangent about using the word should and that I think, I think like once you understand like what the problems are with the word should you can just start using it in a way that means the right thing to you um and then he sort of gets to that in the later sections of like i like like here here's here's like what shoulds are for you can use it to mean like oh that's the thing i want to update on or like oh i made a mistake there or like maybe it's a good idea to do this thing and like as long as you like mean it mean that to yourself internally like it it it's actually very difficult to stop using the word. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a... I, I get, like, you're using it in the spirit of the, like, the intended way that frames it well for you. To say that yeah. you shouldn't use the word should, like, that's a tongue-in-cheek thing. But that's, <laughs> yeah. that's not, like... That's not a knock down anything. That's that's yeah. that's missing the that's missing the spirit of what it's getting at. You could also not use the word should and presumably keep making the same mental mistakes. Right. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the point isn't don't use the word should. The point is notice when you use it and find out what's driving that. Right. Exactly. Like yeah. no, notice that you use the word should, and then like check if you are using it wrong internally. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, I don't know that I have very much more to add. I mean, I'm um, sold. I'm gonna start reading this, yeah, like immediately. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, this, this, this. I got exactly what I wanted out of this, which was a a crash course. To, I yeah, I guess just one, one, one thing. A crash course to prove to me that this is worth reading in whole. So, yeah, I guess yeah. my my last thing that I'd say is that like we probably covered like less than half of the concepts in it, and they're explained in much more detail in it. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in here. This is like 
I don't know, I was going to say probably like better than going to the library and reading like the most popular five self-help books. (laughs) Yeah. I would, I think I can confidently with fairly high confidence say that like you'll probably get more out of reading these blog posts. We live in a weird time, man, where people just like go on the internet and spend a lot of effort and time into making these helpful things for people as opposed to putting them in books. And the books, the self-help books are usually crap too because people are doing it for money, I guess. Whereas this is like something he wanted to do. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm really tempted now to name drop like the last three books I found really valuable. Go ahead. <laughs> the Six Pillars of Self-Esteem, um, which ties together a bunch of different things I've been studying in this area like really well into one framework. And The Courage to be Disliked, which how do I even characterize that? I would say it almost like it, it kind of is in the title, but it's also not. <laughs> Because it sounds like um, a way to not feel bad about, like, or to not give a shit about what other people think of you. But, like, it's a lot more about kind of the idea of the intrinsic confidence, I think. Yeah, and it it relates a lot to the guilt thing, I think, where, like, the courage to be disliked is about how to interact with the world effectively without self-flagellating in, like, a lot of various ways. Um, And it's got a lot of things going on. But, like... How to not self-flagellate unnecessarily, and also why you should. Also, why you should, or why you sh- should not self-flagellate. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> all right. Has anyone here read the book "The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck"? I have. Is this like that? Um, I, I uh, this might be an unpopular opinion. I didn't really like uh, "The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck." Neither. I haven't. I I haven't read it, but I I I've had people recommend it to me. But I feel like. Think, maybe there's something I get out of it, but I think I feel like I already don't. Yeah. And so maybe they just thought like you would like this because maybe it jams with how you're already acting or something. I, but, I think I didn't like it because it doesn't really tell you why you, or like it it didn't make a convincing argument to me for why I shouldn't give a fuck. Mm. Whereas, the courage mm. to be disliked has this uh, idea of vertical and horizontal relationships, um, which was a useful model that I could use to realize when either. Um, you're engaging with someone in a way that kind of makes them your superior or that you're talking down to them. That in, in combination with one of the other major ideas from that book of, of task interference where like some tasks are your tasks, some tasks are other people's tasks. Um, one of the somewhat harder to internalize things is that other people's emotions and dealing with them are their task. Um, and that like it is actually uh, you actually just get worse outcomes if you take other people's emotions as your own responsibility and other people's tasks as your own responsibility. And that, like, it is actually better and more effective for everyone, you know, like, in the long run to leave some things up to other people and just choose not to worry about it yourself. I like the books like this that are just really packed full of ideas and concepts and tools that you can use. Subtle art, not giving a fuck. Probably... I. Th- I don't want to like shit on it or anything. It wasn't a terrible book. I think that for for a person who's never really thought about any of this kind of thing before, it could be really illuminating. If you already have though, like Steven, you were saying, I already kind of don't give a fuck, then like it's probably not the book for you. Good. I'll save myself all the time. <laughs> the only self-help book I read was during a hard few years. Geez, probably, I don't know, seven to 10 years ago. My autobiographical memory is all over the place. And I can't remember the name of it, but I'll bet it's the only self-help book that Richard Weissman wrote. And he's a psychologist who, um, he came to like tam- like skeptic meetups and stuff. And he was, uh, I think he still is a big figure. Um, it was kind of like, 
influence science and practice in that it was like here's the things that like science has shown actually help and i tried that and i don't know if it helped or not i guess i don't know how much that's the, that's the thing that sucks about all of these like i don't know how much worse off i would have been if i didn't do these things but things like a gratitude journal or you know um just spending you know a few minutes a day like meditating on gratitude things that you're happy about even if you're not writing them down but to write them down if you can mm. um I'm trying to get some other techniques oh i guess like the the wag the dog's tail thing and it's like if you if you're if you're slouching your if you're slouching your posture and kind of dragging your feet you know like just try and like stand up straight walk more confidently and like project positive body language that actually does turn inward oh, um i hate to tell you this but that's the first chapter of 12 rules for life <laughs> I, i'm not except surprised with lobsters yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with lobsters that's where the lobsters come from holy shit if you're not familiar with the jordan peterson lobster memes we'll leave that to google um yeah i um have either of you read the self-authoring books by jordan peterson because i Um, was recommended those by uh somebody i haven't read them my roommate uh, bought the course online and got a lot out of doing it yeah i had a i was talking with david youssef who defends jordan peterson's like Stuff that he's good at writing. Yeah. Um, I guess pre-dark internet intellectual dark web stuff. Yeah, even, well, <laughs> and maybe. I, well, I'm not sure I when think he wrote rules these. is pretty good, actually. Yeah, I've heard that too. Um, maybe maybe his books are just better. Maybe his books and his not religious books are better than him talking about stuff today about random crap. The books are but. still very long-winded. I think we've been over this. <laughs> if you can skim the books, but, but <laughs> or the, read a distillation the, of them. But yeah. I'd considered buying the self-authoring program. Uh, hmm. Is that worth? I think it was fifty bucks. Um, I feel like you might be better with the CFAR, although um, I think they're kind of geared more now to your, towards trying to steer people into AI research. So maybe um, there's the, what's the monastic academy? Oh man, yeah, you could just go be a like project-based monk for a couple months. I mean, or you could read um, Replacing Guilt. Yeah. yeah. That sounds like it's an entire novel length of stuff there. Yes, yeah, so if you're ranking these, would you put this one as like one of the most valuable things to read on the subject of just like, feeling better if you feel like your life sucks i yeah i put it pretty high up there i think i think if you have a any any kind of even slightly bad relationship with guilt you absolutely should read this yeah and also the the that's the kind of endorsement i was looking for i didn't mean to interrupt but that that, (laughs) that, that's the yes perfect okay yeah no that i also would say that i mean maybe especially for you and that part in the beginning about addressing like the nihilistic kind of mindset of like why do i need to care about anything or why should i care about anything or can people even really care about anything uh is a really useful part okay i I will also give it a look a lot of self-help doesn't have that kind of why why do i care about helping myself part they just assume that like well of course you want to get more money or whatever the book is about be more productive (laughs) but like this is like like let's take a step back why do you want to make more money or be more productive or whatever your goal is Mm -hmm. and then like is this the best like if you don't have a goal here's a way to find a good one if you have one is this the best thing you could be doing are you doing the things that you're like that will lead you toward that goal correctly uh a lot of yeah stuff that you're not gonna hear in normal self-help books well all right yeah, that right. sounds outstanding. Should we go on to the less wrong posts? Before we begin, uh, I wanted to mention the book club thing that's happening. Yes. Okay, so we have a Discord. Yes. And in the Discord, like, some people want to start a book club, which is cool. I like book clubs. I go to a book club myself, right? 
and apparently they're going to be uh, alternating fiction and nonfiction and stuff. And there was a big old vote as to what the first book would be. And I don't know. I was kind of <laughs> hopeful that at some point somebody would be like, hey, we should read What Lies Dreaming. But uh, it was the very first book picked. And I was like, holy shit. Okay. Out of like eight on the list, it won enormously. Yeah. So, so uh, I guess starting when this episode airs is when the book club begins. So go to our Discord if you want to be in on that. And they're starting with the first four or five chapters. And then I don't know how frequently they'll be discussing and reading and stuff. But yeah, that's the first one. There's a special channel for it in the Discord if you're into that sort of thing. Yeah. Online book club sounds like much more my vibe too. I think... It encouraged me to read more, like, dedicate actual, like, that's probably part of the reason that you do a book club, that, like, it actually forces you to read stuff. Yeah. And, like, the social commitment, right? Rather than just, like, a personal commitment to finish a boring book. Yeah, well, um, I mean, if, if it's a boring book, I don't finish it, even if it's for book club. Well, that's not entirely true. I'll sometimes hate read a book, oh, so yeah. I can talk about it in book club. Hate reading books is pretty fun sometimes. It's, it, what, it stopped being fun for me for doing it solo, but doing it when I know I'm going to talk about it. Like, the reason yeah. I, I go to book club is because I really love reading. But then when you're done reading, you have like this whole thing you've gone through and you can't talk about it with anyone else because no one else has gone through it. I think you that's... can try, but like you could just bore the shit out of one of your friends. Like, hey, let me tell you about this fun book I read. Okay, so in chapter one, there's this guy. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, uh-huh. That's uh-huh. why I think that's why popularity is so big because you can talk about other things. That's like why when the Harry Potter train gets rolling, like everyone gets on Harry Potter because you can actually talk about it. And the Marvel Universe stuff, yeah. once you know other people are doing the same thing, you can share the experience. And so, yeah, the book club is like... I read a lot more books than people than get popular in a year, you know? And so having this other dedicated core people that will read the same books and we can all talk about it afterwards with is really cool. So there are like five things there I want to touch on. Okay. I'll try and be as fast as possible. All right. And I'll probably forget at least one or two. So one, this is the fastest and least least relevant. When things are popular, you want to talk about them. So Netflix, when they do a series, they do all the episodes at once. Yes. Which means yeah, go home so and watch all of Stranger Things in one weekend so they can talk about it with your coworkers on Monday. I can't either. Many, I don't pe- have many the people can't. And so that that's hard for that. So Disney, when their thing launches in November, they're doing episodic weekly releases for their original content. Thank God. Which I really cool. think Netflix should go to that too. They they hopefully need to make some changes. They're losing money. Because you know, I mean, um, binging was really big when it was introduced, but now it's like people want more content every weekend because they've gone through all of your season eight or season whatever in a matter of a few hours. Yeah. I think uh, Netflix has been down in profits and new customers for the last like quarter or two. So mm-hmm. they're, they're going to be updating their model if they want to stay in business. And there's like actual healthy competition now, right? So yeah. um, reading things and boring people by talking about them when they haven't read it yet. Yeah. So I'm going to do that to you two and to the, to the listeners. Oh, God. Real fi- time again. I finished. No, no. <laughs> okay. I finished Draco Malfoy in the Practice of Rationality, which I think I plugged. If I didn't, I meant to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you did. I believe you did. So it was fun. I enjoyed the whole thing. I do recommend reading it, although I am not as like vehement in my recommendation as I was in the first third of it. Mm-hmm. It changes kind of what it seemed like it was going to do a bit Uh, and then disappointing it is and he he opens the book with like you know heads up people complained about the ending and i'm like how can they complain this is going to be great i'm loving it (laughs) and uh the this isn't a spoiler but the the author said that it was a deliberate artistic choice to make the reader feel as ambushed as the characters Hmm. because the end is confusing there's there's this complex plot that comes together and you're like, what the fuck is happening? And he's like, I wanted you to feel that way too. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, well, he succeeded. Um, so there's that. And then there's a, a semi-satisfying three-chapter epilogue that he apparently released like a year later. But since this was three years ago, it was all all at once for me. Yeah. So I do recommend Draco Malfoy and the Practice of Rationality. It picks up at year two 
and it's just a continuation fic of methods of rationality it's not another diversion of this and that so yeah um let's see a few other things you mentioned uh oh i, I didn't mention that apparently um some of the people in the discord they do audiobooks like most people do especially people who listen to podcasts because <laughs> this is our preferred medium and uh there's a bunch of people who are just like or at least one person might be expanding now was like sure i'll read this into a microphone and upload it so uh yeah if you wanted what lies dreaming in audio form i guess you can get it on the discord and i'll probably be putting it up at uh my website as well so people can get it there that's oh, sweet one chapter at a time yeah i think they've recorded the first four chapters now and the yeah. fifth one is coming up yeah the guy doing the audiobook is uh steve who was on episode 14 of our podcast oh which um, one was that uh, the street epistemology. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that Excellent. was such a good episode. Yeah. yeah, and it was he's a fun guy, and it seems exciting, and uh, he is the guy doing the thing. The, he's the philosophist on our yes. Discord. Yeah, that's him. Okay. I well, was I not mean, philosophist is the oh, one doing it. I don't know if that's who Steve is. I'm ninety percent sure. Okay. Okay. I should triple check. It is. Yeah. Okay. It's weird going back to a medium where people are anonymous by default. Mm-hmm. I'm so used to social media. A lot of people just having their identities, and like now there's people that just have like a snake as their avatar. I preferred that, I think. A consistent uh, identity so that you still have your reputational effects, but enough anonymity that you can say things and you aren't worried about people burning your house down. I don't know <laughs> if I preferred it. I think, like, when I was very socially anxious all the time, I preferred it. And then, like, now that I'm less that, I find it a bit like, man, I don't know who any of these people are. And then they can just change their avatars and names all the time. So even if I kind of started to associate... uh personality with them now it's like no i don't know who's that is that person that person is that the same uh but if they change their avatar and personality then that's just a new person with new reputation right i I guess i mean unless they're saying like hey i'm the same person i was before and then you're like stop changing your name you douchebag yeah no that's what i'm talking about i like that thing that's kind of annoying oh okay yeah that is super annoying very much an inconvenience (laughs) i don't have much of that experience i guess in my online life like, well, the people I knew generally stuck with their handles because that's that's important. You have continuity of personality. Yeah. I mean, I use my real name on here. I'm probably in the yeah. phone books, so yeah. if someone wants to burn my house down, they could. I'd ask that you don't, but <laughs> I try not to be inflammatory enough to have anyone burn my house down, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To be totally self-contradictory, I'm considering changing my name. Okay. Like. And your personality? What the hell? Are uh, you changing your avatar, too? <laughs> I'd actually, yes. Okay. <laughs> that's a transgender joke. I was, yeah, I was, I was lining it up. I'm glad it worked. And now I killed the joke, so. Don't. That's awesome, yeah. <laughs> That's a good reason, though. I don't know why people do it online. I don't, I, don't, I guess, like, if you're changing whatever stuff, I don't know. I'm There's... actually generally pro people being able to change stuff that they want. It's just annoying for the other people that have to keep updating. Yeah. So, like, I get it when people get annoyed at trans people changing their name and their pronouns and stuff. It's like, yeah, Dude, it, it is kind of a pain. But You like, don't even have to be trans. You remember the person in high school? It was generally a girl. I hate for there to be a stereotype, but it was generally always a girl that would change her name every semester. You'd be like, oh, hey. Hey, Rose, how you doing? She's like, no, I'm Candy now. I'm like, oh, okay, hi, Candy. And, you know, a year later, hey, Candy. Well, nice to see you again after summer vacation. No, now I'm Catherine. I'm like, oh, my God. If I talked to more people, I might have had that problem. Okay. You what? If I talked to more people, I might have had that problem. Okay. Yeah, maybe that's... Maybe I just didn't talk to enough people to meet that person. No. Well, I forgot all the other things I was going to plug with. I got the Draco Malfoy and the Practice of Rationality. So that was the big one. Cool. Um, and you mentioned the audiobooks so of, yeah. of What Lies Dreaming, which is super exciting. Yeah, it's really cool. I feel like I'm forgetting something, but if it's important, it'll come back up. So, uh, Becky, should we go on to the less wrong posts? Okay. So the first one is Making Beliefs Pay Rent 
and then in parentheses, in anticipated experiences. And this is a very famous post. This yes, is the is. like the one if I had to if I had to share one as one one post with somebody about like what is this rational what what is rationality? What is like a te- what's an example of a technique? What do you mean you like use cognitive science to better your thinking? Like this is the one I would point them to. Huh. This isn't the like my favorite post. Yeah. It's it's up there, but it, it's not the one I get the most personal meaning out of, but I feel like it's one that really quickly summarizes like, hey look, here's a thing that you can notice in your head, maybe you know, and this is an example of, of the of a technique and it's succinctly readable in five minutes. Excellent. Yeah, I think I agree. This one kind of is the core of the skills that you would build on for the rest of the rationalist uh, techniques. Oh, I hope we can do it justice. Uh, should I summarize the first intro part? Uh, sure. So in the beginning, uh, Eliezer uh, relates the old question, if a tree falls in a forest and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? One person says, yes, it does, for it makes vibrations in the air. Another says, no, it does not, for there's no auditory processing in any brain. Uh, there's a little bit more said, but I'm skipping ahead to, though the two argue, one saying no and the other saying yes, they do not anticipate any different experiences. The two think they have different models of the world, but they have no difference with respect to what they expect will happen to them. Their maps of the world do not diverge in any sensory detail. And he said things like, would they expect for if a recorder was put there to for it not to pick up anything? Or do they expect if similar sound waves hit an ear, would it not make any uh, firings in the brain? That sort of thing. So there wasn't there was I think it was some Internet thing that I missed. But my coworkers a couple of years ago were talking about like the is water wet question. Right. <laughs> and I relayed this exact argument. And I'm like, you know, first of all. Well, I, I skipped, I, I I dove into the argument with them for a couple minutes. And I was like, wait a minute, let's just take a step back. What would be the difference if it was or wasn't? Mm-hmm. Like, are we having different, like, predictions here? And they're like, no. And I'm like, then what's the point? And they're like, that's not the point. I'm like, that is the point. <laughs> yeah. People seem to often confuse factual arguments for semantic arguments. The whole uh, tree falling is kind of like, well, how are you defining the word sound? Is it, uh, is it? the vibrations in the air existing or not, or whether there's someone listening to the, it's just, you're, you're making a semantics argument. Like, what are you actually trying to predict? And then I never oh, realized up. that was the other side of it, that uh, it's, there's auditory processing, which is what sound is. Like, I just, I was like, of course it makes a sound. What are you talking about? How is this a koan, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, Eliezer says, a foundational skill in the martial art of rationality is the ability to spot inside your own head psychological signs that you have a mental map of something and signs that you don't. So, in the example of the tree, uh, how are you defining sound? (laughs) And uh, do you know that sound is vibrations in the air? And then could you test that? Could you record it? And is it going to show sound waves, you know? So that's where the, I guess, anticipated experiences part comes in. Yeah, like basically it's kind of saying change the question to do these two people walking through the forest anticipate having different experiences of hearing a tree fall? And like the answer is no. (laughs) And he points out a little bit later that the experience, different experiences are not necessarily always like uh, anticipations of different sensory experiences. Like he said, when you uh, if you're trying to determine when a ball hits the ground, you got to use beliefs like Earth's gravity is 9.8 meters per second per second, and this building is 120 meters tall. And those aren't anticipations of a sensory experiences. They're verbal propositions in, in your head. Uh, but these two beliefs have 
inferential consequences uh, that are direct sensory anticipation, like when you would see the ball hit or when you would hear the thing on the ground. So your beliefs can change what you anticipate uh, being your experiences. Yeah. It was saying also, it's tempting to try to eliminate this by insisting that the only legitimate kind of belief is the anticipation of sensory experience, but the world actually has a lot of data that we can't sense. Like, we can't see atoms, there's sounds past our range, there's colors we can't see. We can't see math. (laughs) But yeah, you could uh, use math to calculate when the ball is going to hit the ground. Humans are better than any other species at learning to model the unseen. And then Eliezer says, this is both our great strength and our great weakness. Mm-hmm. Because humans often believe in things that are not only seen, but unreal. Yeah. Like, uh, he brought up again the alchemist's uh, concept of phlogiston being something that creates fire, causes heat. Like, what is it? I don't know. It's the thing that does it. Yeah. Anticipate- <laughs> Obviously, it must exist if it happens. Right. I anticipate that when I put heat on this wood, phlogiston will come out and that'll make bright lights and more heat, I guess. But it wasn't tied to anything real. Yeah, it's tied to the kind of inferential chain there. Well, something causes the fire, so I'm going to call it phlogiston. And mm-hmm. <laughs> or, um, yeah, this seems like it should be a thing that is true. Um, or kind of ideas about things like ghosts, because we're, we've evolved to model things as, have, as being agents, like... We're, mo- we're, we're evolved to model other human ma- minds, so we see lots of things as either having been made by a human or having some kind of human-like sentience and agency and a reason that it's doing what it's doing that yeah. like follows anthropic principles. Yeah, he mentioned a good way to... Well, let me just read the poll then. Uh, the rationalist virtue of empiricism consists of constantly asking which experiences our beliefs predict, or better yet, prohibit. Do you believe that phlogiston is the cause of fire? Then what do you expect to see happen because of that? Do you believe that if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, it still makes a sound? Then what experiences must therefore therefore befall you? It is even better to ask, what experiences must not happen to you? Do you believe that Elan Fatal explains the mysterious aliveness of living beings? Then what does this belief not allow to happen? What would definitely falsify this belief? A null answer means that your belief does not constrain experiences. It permits anything to happen to you. So, yeah, if if your beliefs don't actually disallow things from happening, they don't do much of anything. Yeah. There was also, do unreal things connect to any sensory experiences? No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to think, like, uh, I'm remembering, what was that show, Ghost Hunters? Mm -hmm. Where they were trying to, they're using carpentry tools incorrectly (laughs) and then trying to say that it's evidence of ghosts but if a ghost were a real thing you would anticipate some kind of sensory experience maybe a cold drop maybe sounds maybe you could capture something on video except for all of those and this is i I don't think brian dunning was the first one to put it this way but he put it this way most succinctly when i came across it that like everything that the ghost hunters do all their tools of you know uh you know low frequency vibrations cold spots etc it's like they, they use all of these and be like, look, ghosts. And it's like, we haven't established that ghosts do that. <laughs> so, like, ghosts have no known properties. So to say that this cold drop is, indica- is indicative of a ghost means that would, necess- would necessitate that we've already established yeah. that ghosts make things cold. I mean, um... Which, if, like, why on earth should that be the case? Like, so, if you ask Supposedly me, there's a bunch of... Uh, a lot of anecdotal reports of people seeing ghosts and they say that there's connected phenomenon. Phenomena. If... 
people were actually able to consistently measure the same phenomena in places where people also experience psychological disturbance, then maybe that would be something interesting. But pretty much what we've shown is that no, sure, or <laughs> we like, cannot measure anything like that. Actually. Or like an old basement with creaky hinges, like, you know, maybe you get light carbon monoxide poisoning down there and you, you start hallucinating <laughs> stuff. Like that would explain all these things as well, right? What we need is like a ghost in a box that we can hold a thermometer to, that we can poke with a stick, that we can put a microphone next to and all that stuff. Well, lots of times they say that what causes these things to happen is ectoplasm. Right. Which is basically phlogiston for ghosts, right? <laughs> ghost I don't know if the ghost hunters say that. I, I know the ghost busters did. Yeah. <laughs> but like, not to say that ghost hunting is a sophisticated field. Just as sophisticated as ghost busting. They're not literally... Uh, cartoon caricatures of themselves exactly anyway um how about belief in belief oh can i close that with um what his ending paragraph which is the one that i loved yeah i know which one you're talking about at the very end he says above all don't ask what to believe ask what to anticipate every question of belief should flow from a question of anticipation and that question of anticipation should be the center of the inquiry Every guess of belief should begin by flowing to a specific guess of anticipation and should continue to pay rent in future anticipations. If a belief turns deadbeat, evict it. Which is just a great thing. Like If, if your <laughs> beliefs are doing nothing for you at all, why do you even have them? Gotta make them pay rent. That's right. Using up all that valuable brain real estate. So, belief and belief. Belief and belief starts with Carl Sagan's Invisible Dragon Parable, which briefly is like... The friend comes to you and says, hey, I've got a dragon in my garage. And you're like, that's so cool. I want to see. Oh, well, you can't really see it. It's invisible. Oh, okay. Well, no problem. I'll, I'll throw some flour on it. Well, it's permeable to flour. <laughs> um, okay, well, we'll put, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll measure the amount of oxygen and CO2 in the air and we'll watch it breathe. Well, it doesn't actually, you know, uh, 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 exhale CO2. Okay, we'll listen for its footsteps. Well, it has inaudible footsteps. <laughs> and so... Carl Sagan uses this as the um, like the idea that that bad hypotheses need to do fast footwork in order to vo- in order to avoid falsification, right? Yeah. Um, and I I like this because I'd read uh, science or what was the science as a candle in the dark? That's the subtitle to the Demon Haunted World. Thank you, yeah, the Demon it's Haunted a great World. Book. Yeah, which is like the hey, what skepticism? This read this book. Yeah. And Carl Sagan's a beautiful author and uh, great examples, and he's a smart smart guys under very compassionate it. too i know he was some wonderful some people i know didn't like the tone of the new atheists um i think carl sagan kind of <laughs> if you're somebody that's just put off by richard dawkins for whatever reason then like i would recommend people read carl sagan because he's it's just like almost the mr rogers of science <laughs> yeah he um got the sweater vest and everything i think yeah imagine like i mean neil no, deGrasse... he had a turtleneck yeah he did uh neil degrasse tyson's like you know, I think Carl Sagan's shoes were so big that like five people, five people fill them now. Um, but Neil deGrasse Tyson fills them in some of the ways, like for example, hosting Cosmos. Um, in the, ah, I could go on and on. The if anyone hasn't seen the first episode of the revamp of Cosmos, mm. just any, and if you're not interested, even just watch the last ten minutes to get a kind of feel for the character of who Carl Sagan was. Um, I could go on, but I don't know. Uh, the, yeah. Hail Sagan. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> Hail Sagan, yes. Um, so what I liked about this this post is that I I, had, I was already familiar with it, and as a budding young rationalist coming across this, I'm like, finally, something I've heard of. Mm. And then he goes on to expand it in a way that I thought was really interesting. So yeah. belief in belief. 
Yeah, he says that he uses this parable to make a different point. The claimant must have an accurate model of the situation somewhere in their mind, because they can anticipate in advance exactly which experimental results they'll need to excuse. Which is pretty cool when you think about it. Yep. Like, yeah, we're capable of holding a lot of contradictory beliefs as humans. Uh, people are really good at compartmentalization. I used to be really confused as to how... Uh, I don't know, um, a biologist who specializes in, like, studying the RNA of bacteria can also be, like, a young Earth creationist. Right. And that's how you explained it. It's just like, this is the, my science world beliefs, and this is my religion world beliefs, and they don't overlap. It's and still not clear to me how to... that I activate them in. And yet somehow, somewhere deep in his brain, there's something like making excuses for one, you know, subconsciously, because he can't admit that he knows... It's still not clear to me. Like, so I understand, like, yes, you can you can take your science coat off and put your, your church coat on on Sunday. It's still not clear to me how you don't notice that you're doing that. You don't but have that, the self-awareness. Yeah. Or you are aware of the cognitive dissonance, and then you just always push it to the side because you're like, well, not dealing with that. I remember doing that. Oh. A, a thing that parts of your mind can do is actively suppress other thoughts if it's useful to do so. If you're <laughs> if you're not inclined to listen to the part of you that's saying, "Hey, shut up over there," right? Right. Like y you have to have like a distaste for shutting down your own thoughts to even escape this in the first place. I think that's what I've always had. Like I, I've I've never liked. I've always noticed when I was suppressing a thought, mm -hmm. um, and it always kind of hurts, right? It yeah, it's this weird, stingy feeling in mm -hmm. my in my brain, and I think it part of. I guess methods of rationality is, is raising that to like a like an, a louder noise or a, a hurtier hurt just so like you're, you're aware that you're doing it um, i think i almost think that like the, the sequences and the methods are written for people who already like have that and this is ways of how to fix the things that raise those alarms all the time yeah, yeah. and then now that you've got them and you've got all this this bulwark in place what you can do with it yeah yeah i definitely think that was the context of the sequences this was kind of written after new atheism and skepticism became popular mm -hmm. right yes. i think Stephen and i were talking about this one day we were just hanging out randomly but like i feel like i discovered the sequences after i kind of went through my like angry atheist phase i'm gonna argue with believers and yeah then like i kind of got tired of that and it's like this is kind of like the next step i think right yeah that was my journey too it's also worth pointing out that carl sagan's writings predates the new atheists by like 20 years yeah, yeah. so the the tone of Religion sucks, man. What I mean, the term I, I'm wouldn't have been tolerated twenty years ago. Exactly, and to be fair, I think that was basically Sagan's opinion, but he was way nicer about it. I think and he's on I, record when, saying when, that actually, like being much less charitable when he's like in his own house. <laughs> and also, that wasn't twenty years ago; that was like thirty-five years ago. But twenty years before the New Atheists. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems like that was yesterday because we're old. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Our younger listeners are like, Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> that one 14 year old <laughs> Jeez. like yeah. man these guys are old mm -hmm. how did you get past how did you get past the explicit warning on itunes to listen to this <laughs> <laughs> do we have an explicit warning i think so we say fuck occasionally yeah that's true i guess we talk about dead babies and <laughs> dead baby hitler i'm not sure we've well okay we do talk about dead baby hitler <laughs> okay. right. did we so, finish summarizing this yes, yes. um uh, empiricism is supposed to prevent us from making this class of mistake because our beliefs are supposed to pay rent, as we just got finished explaining. But then, and this kind of also ties back into replacing guilt, uh, what about the beliefs that you're supposed to believe? Uh, Eliezer brings up Santa Claus when you're a kid. 
and then also has a little Daniel Dennett quote um, where it's difficult to believe a thing. It's often much easier to believe that you ought to believe it. Should. And then it gets worse. <laughs> Nobody will admit to themselves. I don't believe in the ultimate cosmic sky that I don't believe the ultimate cosmic sky is blue and green, but I believe I ought to believe it. Not unless they're unusually capable of acknowledging their own lack of virtue, which kind of answers your uh, problem with that, Stephen. Yeah. People don't want to believe in belief. They just be- <laughs> believe in belief. They just believe in belief. Yeah, exactly. It's hard to say. It is. Yeah. The, the, again, that was people don't believe in belief and belief. They just believe in belief. There we go. Um, What's virtuous is to believe, not to believe in believing. Yeah, I think um, the... I had another thing with Dan Dennett there, but I forgot what it was. Um, yep, it's gone. Other than if you like that little witticism of that's so Dennett's quote was where it's difficult to believe a thing, it's often much easier to believe that you ought to believe it. I think Dennett coined the term belief and belief. I think so I think too. So. Yeah, he. There's a lot of things floating around there that Dennett's actually responsible for. Mm-hmm. Um, the only book of his that I actually finished reading was Breaking the Spell. Uh, a lot of his stuff is and maybe i should try again it's been 10 or 15 years since i've tried but it back then back when i was a teenager it was too dense to like i read it because like this seems really cool and i'm just like ah, this is getting hard and (laughs) you're not keeping my interest but i bet it would now so um anyway yeah so belief should should include unspoken anticipation controllers belief and belief should include unspoken cognitive behavior guiders uh, the dragon claimant anticipates as if there's no dragon in the garage and makes makes excuses as if they believed in the belief. Um, that's what I was going to say about Dennett was that I remember he had another quote that there are more people that believe in belief than there are people who actually believe because he's met like, um, I don't know, people like pastors struggling with like not believing in stuff anymore, but thinking that they should. Mm-hmm. And kind of by default, every believer believes in belief. Mm-hmm. And as long as there's one person who just believes who or rather every every believer like believes right mm-hmm. and there's at least some people who believe in belief that like i should still be believing this and that's like that that's a de facto premise of belief so he he, he i was it was just fun to imagine like yes there are by necessity more people who believe in belief than there are people who actually believe stuff yeah it's not that interesting but just again it was one of those other little dented kind of he has this way of being able to put on like meta glasses whenever he wants well i think it, it seems like actually like a rationalist virtue to like be able to have beliefs but not believe in those beliefs of like have the belief but then like be ready to just like throw it away as soon as you see any counter evidence that is convincing yeah have beliefs that you can update right i think update is better counter evidence just throw away well, as soon as you see any yeah but, yeah. but yeah, relinquishment I, yeah. is one of the 12 virtues of rationality yeah yeah but, but we relinquishing sh- with enough with enough cause right yeah we haven't done the 12 virtues maybe that'd be we'll do that at some point yeah all right the 12 virtues is this is the short post that I won't go into any of them, but it's it's the as the title suggests the twelve virtues of rationality, and it's all written in like preachy high talk. Mm-hmm. That if this was your first exposure to the community, you'd be like, oh, this guy's insane, and they're all cultists. <laughs> um, but it it's it gives nice flowery language to like refer back to and say, thus it was written, or you know, uh, hence it was written that this. Yeah. And as long as you know you're doing it tongue in cheek, as everyone does, unless you're coming across one of these things in the wild. Yeah. then it's a lot of fun to have kind of that kind of highfalutin language to, to point things at. Eliezer yeah. says that it's not psychologically realistic to say that the dragon claimant believes it's beneficial to believe that there's a dragon, but it is realistic to say that they, the dragon claimant anticipates as if there is no dragon in the garage, 
and makes excuses as if they believed. All right, and then we had one more sequence. Bayesian judo! Which is just a little story. It's fun. It's a fun story. So, the true tales of Elias Yukowski. So, Elias Yukowski is at a dinner party when someone said to him, you're, you're, oh, that's right. I'm yeah. the doofus. <laughs> doofus. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe artificial intelligence is possible because only God can make a soul. Eliezer replied. You mean if I can make an artificial intelligence, it proves your religion is false? When realizing that he'd made his hypothesis vulnerable to falsification, he then said, Well, I didn't mean that you couldn't make an intelligence, just that it couldn't be emotional in the same way we are. To which Eliezer replied, Well, so if I make an artificial intelligence that, without being deliberately programmed without any sort of script, starts talking about an emotional life that sounds like ours, that means your religion is wrong. I, I guess we may have to agree to disagree on this. Then Eliezer brought up Omen's agreement theorem, which shows that no two rationalists can agree to disagree. If two people disagree with each other, at least one of them must be doing something wrong. Finally, he said... Well, I guess I was really trying to say that I don't think you can make something eternal. Well, I don't think so either. I'm glad we were able to reach agreement on this, as Amun's agreement theorem requires. <laughs> so what Jelly stretched out his hand, and he shook it, and then he wandered away. I loved the line, the one realized he had just made his hypothesis <laughs> vulnerable to falsification. <laughs> <laughs> but, dude, who would have come up with, with that reply? Well, that's why I liked in the in the longer version, he says, at this point, I must have become divinely inspired because yeah. I instantly responded. You like, mean if I can make artificial intelligence that proves your religion's false? <laughs> like, I would have thought of something like, well, that's stupid. God doesn't <laughs> exist or souls don't exist or something, you know, like this will never be an issue because there are no souls. But I was like, oh, I can disprove your God <laughs> with your own claim. He got to have a shower thought like in real time and have that conversation. Yeah, that yeah. was beautiful. I also want to say that I uh, the reason I put these three in for this week instead of just two like we normally do is because this is directly ties back to making beliefs pay rent in anticipated experience. It's it's one of those things that uh, what does your beliefs not allow to happen, right? If this guy really believes that only God can make a soul, then you cannot create an AI. Uh, so that is actually a belief that pays rent in anticipated experience, except that he walked it back right away because, you know can't can't have your god be falsifiable but then assuming that he stuck to it and actually updated he then changed his belief to be you know different so his, his new belief is his new belief would be there's no god once yeah, there's an ai exactly <laughs> which isn't actually going to happen but but that was that was a beautiful example of beliefs paying rent yeah and using that to you know bayesian judo someone into atheism yeah <laughs> like your beliefs can't kind of just be a bunch of nodes unconnected from each other it's real easy to actually like point out contradictory thoughts i think isn't that what people do um when they're doing street epistemology is not even really tell the person things but just ask them questions leading them to realize that the things they believe are contradictory yeah, yeah. the socratic method yeah. yeah um or at the very least that you don't really and i think uh our street epi street epistemologists his name was also steven wasn't it i don't remember it's been like two two and a half years I'm 90% sure, because that's a great name, and I think it stuck with me. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> I think that the, it's, it's, I think street epistemology is practiced in a way that's slightly less aggressive than the Socratic method, but that's sort of the, the same thing. It's like, look, if you really believe this, then you'd be saying this, right? And it's like, well, I, I'm not saying that, so I must not really believe this. Yeah. yeah. 
I also, back when I was getting into atheism, when new atheism was a new thing, that was what a lot of the forum stuff was. It was basically, it wasn't street epistemology because street epistemology is friendly and it like uses the Socratic method to make, to trick people into questioning their own beliefs, right? Whereas uh, the forums were a lot of like, boom, checkmate atheist or boom, checkmate theist, you know? <laughs> I just proved the logical contradiction in your own claims. Uh, if people evolved from monkeys, why are there still monkeys? Checkmate atheists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Uh, so for next next time, we will be covering the less wrong posts, professing and cheering, and belief as attire. And there will be links to those on our website, thebasinconspiracy.com. I think I've also related to both of those in examples, either I think off the air to both of you guys that I've seen it happen in real life. Mm -hmm. And I'm in these situations and I'm like, oh man, this is this is uh, applause lights, which I think is a separate post, but it's the same thing as professing and cheering. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm watching this happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, was very, it was very disconcerting. Um, yeah, great. Cool. We have uh, one listener feedback and one question from the podcaster all right so is it okay if we indulge me as i ask a question please all right so for the past i don't know i think three months now past six episodes or so we've sort of changed our editing uh strategy to where before <laughs> actually it's not important to describe the difference i actually kind of want to describe the difference okay. briefly uh because i feel really insecure <laughs> before we like would go through the entire thing like literally re-listening to every minute of this and we would cut out a lot of the likes you knows ums long pauses that kind of stuff which first of all i thought was very important in a social good kind of way because that would cut the time of a podcast from like two hours to an hour and 50 minutes just cutting out all that stuff that literally conveys no information it's just giving us time to think and you know, when you're talking with two, three other people in a room, that's no big deal. But when you're being listened to by thousands of people, you add up 10 minutes every two weeks. That is a huge amount of human productive time that is being lost for nothing. And so I, I felt like a virtuous, virtuous person for doing this, right? And I wished all podcasts would do that. Nothing annoys me more than just shit wasting my time. Um, Can I point out that there are podcast apps like Overcast for iOS that automatically skip dead air. Yeah, but they don't skip like you knows and such stuff. Th that's you know? true. Yeah. I should also point out that before you make the rest of this point, that the mm -hmm. last episode, I did kind of go through and crawl through. I'm not exactly sure why. Mm -hmm. um, so this, if you're th if you're thinking how the how's the episodes previously sounded, the last episode, the uh, um, Jesus, what was even the topic? Uh, secret, secret to our success. No, no, that was two episodes ago at this point. Last episode was Are You Jesus or Hitler? Right. Yeah. So that one I did crawl through and kind of edit slowly. I'm not exactly sure why I did that. I was just... I think I was, this was the first time I edited on my new monitor and it was nice and easy. Cool. So, yeah. All right. And, but the other thing is that when I listen to podcasts, I always listen to them sped up. And that makes everyone in them sound smarter. And I was always kind of happy like, yeah, people are probably listening to us sped up, so we sound smarter. And now that we're cutting out all the ums and you knows, we sound even smarter. So now I'm like, also, we, what we've basically done is stop doing that. Uh, it was just taking way too long to edit every episode. It takes about four minutes a minute. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Three to four minutes per minute to edit that way. Right. So a two-hour podcast would take us six to eight hours to edit. Yeah. And it was just, it was too much. And we kept hearing about, like, friends that have their own podcast that they put online a half hour after they record them. And we were like, shit, we got to get in on that action. So basically, we now just here and there cut out some major flubs uh, when we notice them happening and put it up as is. And I'm 
I'm basically wondering, please, if our listeners are willing to give us some feedback. Does it sound a lot worse now? Do you do you notice a drop in quality? Do we sound stupid? <laughs> do you have any recommendations for free audio processing software that we could use? That's an option, too. If there's um, software that will cut out that sort of shit, yeah. Yeah, I think... I don't know if it exists or not. It would be super cool if it did. It might just be the thing that you need a human to do, but... Yeah. I mean, Audacity, if it was all on one track, can cut dead air. Right, but, it can cut dead air, but, but since it can cut stuttering and such. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I if mean, there's some kind of audio version of, like, Photoshop filters that would just <laughs> take a lot of the work out. If anyone needs a side, needs to work on a, has, needs inspiration for a side project, go ahead and make that. Problem is, it Photoshop isn't free. Well, well, even if it's modestly expensive, yeah. we have patron support to buy it. So that's true. Um, if it makes us sound better and reduces wasted human productive hours. Yeah, mainly it was world. just that it would take, yeah, six six to eight hours to edit, and then you know another hour for you know uploading, downloading, adding the intro and outro music, and so it would take like ten hours to do, which is the other main reason that we weren't doing this every week. Yeah. So. Hopefully I can replace the guilt of not doing this anymore with something else. <laughs> For what, I, I guess, two other meta points on that. One, I, like, Sam Harris doesn't chop, chop those out of his conversations. And yeah, people but Sam Harris is naturally genius-level talking person. Oh, but, oh. <laughs> See? <laughs> this is the kind of shit I gotta edit. <laughs> no, no, I think... I, I, Please I, leave it in. No, you, you make... You, I think the... I mean, he, he has ums and, and stutters, and so does everybody. I think that's just that, that's part of what makes speech natural. Mm-hmm. For the first, like, dozen of these, we went through, and we would cut out every stammer, every this and that, and that took, like, 12, 15 hours. Yeah. And then I you know, I listened to, like, you know, Rationally Speaking, or really every podcast, and people talk like they talk, and a podcast sounds conversational. And so I don't burn a lot of fuel worrying about, does this sound like it's scripted, like, we're you know, we're reading this from, you know, a... I'm, I'm doing these things. I'm pausing and I'm and on all that stuff, right? Yeah. Um, that and I'm told, so you said you listen to podcasts to speed up. Mm-hmm. I, and I seem to be the only person who likes listening at regular speed because mm-hmm. it gives me a chance to like actually think in the normal speed of human speech to process what I'm listening to. But I'm told by at least one person that they don't listen to this sped up because of my, speak, my speaking rate. Yes. I have, you should have talked to me 10 years ago. I was incomprehensible. This, I, and right now I'm making an effort to be extra slow, but... I think I've gotten a lot better at talking slower, so maybe maybe you can listen to it at one point one five speed. But it one, be, yeah, it would be really interesting to hear you ten years ago. I could go really fast, like this. I, I was able to talk at a pretty pretty fast pace where people could understand and I could understand them, and it would be just more or less fine. Okay, that was sort of an example. Yeah, that wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. That wasn't maybe as bad as it could be. It's been a while. It's a practice habit that I do in the rest of my life too. Probably is. requires your listeners to be like you know alert though. Yeah. Or to not care what you're saying and just pretend like they're listening. Right. <laughs> the, okay. the podcast, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, they both just naturally talk at 1.5x speed and just all the time. They sound so excited about everything. It's actually really adorable. That's oh, a good that's podcast. Awesome. I love those kind of people. Like Mr. Peanut Butter. Oh, he's the best. <laughs> Who? It was Mr. Peanut Butter. <laughs> Mr. Peanut um, Butter from Bojack Horseman. The, oh. the, the adorable, naive dog friend. Yeah. Okay, okay, listener feedback? What is it? Rockham on the subreddit says, uh, 
This is um, actually something that we got a number of people saying, not just Rockham, and it was mentioned in the Discord a few times as well, so I'll go ahead and say it. Regarding the risk-free assets, the post-risk-free uh, risk-free bonds aren't, or what, I don't remember the exact name, but uh, Rockham is the one I pulled, says, Regarding risk-free assets, it's not that financial theory is too stupid to realize that there is no such thing. Rather, the opposite. But it's still so damn useful that we take the next best thing. And for U.S.-based writers, it was used U.S government bonds and a bunch of people said the same thing that like yeah actual finance people know that there's no such thing that's completely risk-free and this is just the closest thing in the world to what a risk-free would be so they use that term to mean like lowest risk you can possibly get and i think that i i think we overemphasized the part that these aren't risk-free from the post because especially uh the, the last the peak end theory, which I'm sure you're familiar with, the, generally what you remember from experience is the highest point and the end, right? Which is why Eliezer always ends his uh, posts with something really punchy and generally the thing that was his most driving theme in the post. And uh, at the end of that one, he basically said, it's terrifying that this risk-free thing that we have, that we consider the most solid thing in the world, is this fucking risky when you really think about it that what are the chances the U.S. is going to be around for the next 300 years? And doesn't that mean that there's a 10% chance every 30 years or 10% of that chance every 30 years that it's going to collapse? Um, I think the point he was making that was that the world, even when we use the term risk-free, is remarkably dangerous and risky. And it's just a bad term to use because there, there's so much inherent risk in just living in on this earth. And that sucks, and we have to fix that shit because holy crap. Totally. I saw that comment and some of the discussion on the Discord, which we should plug because people are on there all the time. It's great. If you're if you're already on Discord, it might be a fun place to hang out. It's actually, th there's enough chatter that I can't keep up with it anymore. Yeah. Every now and then I'll drop in and read like 50 messages, but I, I just, I can't stay current. Yeah, same. But I guess there's no way to make, like to solve that problem other than maybe making more channels or something. Yeah. I'll ask some Discord experts. Yeah. I just... But, occasionally comment on things that i do see and hope that they still are relevant when people see them yeah yeah or i've just gone in and been like here's a random thing i found unrelated to anything anyone's talking about right now <laughs> right i'm not gonna pretend that i'm like chatting synchronously no that's that's sort of my strategy too but i think in the post that this was responding to yudkowsky wasn't saying that you know economists are talking about risk-free things and they're missing it and i know one who notices that it's risky i think he was specifically calling out talib's uh, use of the word a risk-free investment like government bonds, right? Oh, because Talib should have, especially given the context of that book, not used that term. Right. Yeah. I think that was basically the point. Okay. Uh, maybe I was being too literal with it. Maybe I was making a more general point that these people were responding to. But the way I read it, he was saying, I mean, it's not like him to make a post complaining about one thing one person said. All right. Um, so maybe he, it, it makes sense that he was talking about a broader problem. But That's yeah. why I read it as we have to make the world less prone to collapse and death. Totally. That reminds me of my awesome life insurance agent who got me hooked up with Cryonix, Rudy Hoffman. Um, he works for Kansas City Life, which apparently is like the most secure insurance company on the planet. <laughs> they are they have no debt. They own all the properties where they have offices. They don't just rent office space. Mm -hmm. So he's like, yeah, basically. So, you know, I talked to him, you know, because he's also signed up for Cryonix through Kansas City Life. And uh, he's like, yeah, I want this to work. So that's why I choose them. He's also a great salesperson. I think that's part of it, too. Um, but he's like, yeah, I mean, barring anything short of like a zombie apocalypse, like, <laughs> li like Kansas city life will be the last life insurance company to fall. 
you know, they'll, they'll survive floods, natural disasters, all that stuff because they've got, they own their property and it's all insured. So I want to see the zombie movie where like the last bastion of humanity is this insurance company (laughs) and they've got their shotguns and they're protecting all the uploaded consciousness. (laughs) Awesome. Hmm. Brains in a jar and the zombies are like brains in a jar. (laughs) Already (laughs) de-skulled. So convenient. (laughs) I can imagine actually being a premise for a fun short story where it's like, I can imagine, you know, armed altruistic rationalists protecting the the tanks in in michigan full of full of car protected people like no they're gonna make it (laughs) writers steal this idea okay yeah uh let us thank our patron yes i don't remember whose turn it is to do the thinking i did last week i'll do it all right uh you always give me the ones that are hard to pronounce (laughs) you volunteered this time I, i did um Smriti Ja is our patron this time. Thank you, Smriti. Uh, I hope I didn't just butcher your name terribly, and if I did, I'm sorry. But we still like you anyway. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what I'm saying. I'm tired. Yeah. I'm just trying to thank this person. We are thankful. This will that people do this thing to help us keep going and help us, you know. I never mind. I keep hammering on how I feel appreciated when I do this, and I, I should stop doing that because it gets tired. Well, it's hard every time, right? It's hard not to, but yeah. this is the part of the podcast of other podcasts that I skip. Right. Like, I'll, I'll get to the part where they say the name, and then they'll give 90 seconds how much they appreciate it. But that doesn't... If, we're, if, we're cu- if we cut down the time that we emphasize appreciation, it doesn't mean that we appreciate it any less. Right. It means the world to us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. If, if, it was, if I was the person who was being thanked, I would listen to that part Heck of the yeah. podcast and be like, that's me. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> I, I get to, at I get least to... one person who's listening to this part being like... That's me. Yay. Also, man, they mispronounced my name. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't I wouldn't plug this unprompted, but you reminded me. Brian Dunning sent out like an email because he's recently, I guess in the last year or so, started thanking people who supported the show. Mm-hmm. And he sent an email out like a month in advance. Hey, on episode, I forget which one, I'll be thanking your name. Do you oh. care how I, 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 do you care how I attribute it? And I probably listened to him say, you know, like it was, it was very nice and thoughtful and it appreciated it. So yeah. That was nice. So I, I can confirm that when you when you get a shout out. In fact, every podcast that I've given money to, I've heard my name said, and it makes me smile. So, um, and I don't have a hard name to say. So Smriti Ja, if we did ruin it, by all means, write in and we'll do, we'll fix it. Uh, but if not, if we got close enough, then still, we really appreciate it. And everyone know that that's important to us. Hell yes. All right. Thanks, y'all. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Awesome. Good night, everyone. Okay to kill baby Hitler.